Welcome to The Road Back to You. Looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Ian Cron. And I'm Suzanne Stabile. And we are glad that you're here. Everybody, this is Ian Morgan and Cron. Welcome to the road back to you. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. How are you doing? You know, I'm all right. All right, let's just name what happened. You were supposed to open the show, uh-huh. and I jumped. I jumped in because I just did. Yeah, I was. You know. So anyway, hi. So we're just gonna start over. Hi, hey, welcome to the show. Good. How so, you doing, Ian? I'm. Um, I'm doing. I'm doing great. I'm really excited about our 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 guest today. I am too. You know, I I uh, forgot to take my vitamins this morning. Uh huh. And I of course have my, all my stuff with me because I'm going from here to the mm-hmm. airport because I'm going home. So I took my vitamins a few minutes ago, and I, I feel like I need to double dip <laughs> in terms of the energy that our guest has because I'm I'm not quite caught up yet. Yeah. For those of you who are. Um, just listening in, we've actually been on the line here with our our guest for a little bit, and we have all we've been radiated with yeah, energy, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, I want to welcome to our show, Joe Saxton. Hey, Joe. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing all right, thank you. I just want everyone to know that for the last 20 minutes, we have been enormously entertained by Joe, <laughs> her wonderful dog Mongo, who she threatened to put a bag over its head. No, no, no. Yep. That was Jim's idea. Well, he's an eight on the Enneagram, too. You see that? Exactly. And she laughed. She said she would have if it wouldn't have like, freaked children. her kids. Right. I yep. mean, you know. For us feeling types, that's a little rough. That was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot to take in. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That was quite the initiation. I do apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Are y'all getting a sense of where this show is going for the next 30 minutes or so? Because I, I'm already tense. Hey, listen, um, Joe is an author. She wrote the book, More Than Enchanting which is about women and leadership, a passion of her. She's the board chair of 3D Movements, which works with churches on how to do church, and she's in the church planting. What is, do, you know, do you know some good stuff about Joe? Well, what I know is I want to back up and talk about More Than Enchantment. I love that title so much. More Than Enchanting. Enchanting, right. I love it so much because I, I think even as women have risen to positions of leadership, mm. it, it's because they— are so uniquely something, not just because they're really good leaders. You know how yeah. they do that? And, you know, generationally, you and I are not in the same generation. No. And um, <laughs> I, I was uh, very aware in the last three or four weeks that having been a woman who in the 60s fought for the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and who was the first women basketball coach after Title IX and some things that are firsts for women, yeah. I was never enchanting. Enchanting would not have gotten me any of those positions. But you, you know went to, I mean? well, hold on a second, you went to charm school. I did, but don't, shh. <laughs> I, I'm talking to Joe right now. <laughs> so, I, I so I'm so taken with, and, and more than that, and that's women in leadership. Love it. I love all that. That's what I'm trying Thank to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, she's also a Lutheran pastor, and um, she was very insistent that we tell everyone that she is a Nigerian Londoner. Yeah. Why was that important? Because that catches me, really. I am of Nigerian heritage and very happily and proudly so, but I'm a Londoner as well. I'm a Brit. And uh, they, the two collide like fireworks from time to time. 
but I'm very happy with both. I very much enjoy every aspect of them. Mm. Tell me something. Tell me a great thing about each of them that collides. What I love about um, what I love about being Nigerian, um, the tribe I'm from is called Yoruba, and they, the women I know, actually of all Nigerian women I know, they tend to be quite dynamic. Tend to not have a problem with being strong. Um, whether they're extroverted or introverted, strength is seen as a quality, a valuable quality. Yeah. Um, so that has made certain things easier. Um, <laughs> not everything. But yeah, but not things. everything. <laughs> not everything. Um, being a Londoner, I think I just have, I'll always be a Londoner at heart. It was where I was born and, and raised for the most part. I love the bluntness of Londoners. Um, I love, in America, America loves the accent of a Londoner. It's got me discounts around the country, um, <laughs> for which I'm very grateful. God bless America for that. And, um, but it holds a lot of memories for me. It's, it's, it's my life. Mm. It's part of my life. So even though I'm far away from both Nigeria and London, um, they're never really that far away. So you're an eight on the Enneagram, and you just talked about the fact that you can, you, you love, uh, those pieces of your heritage because they give you permission to be blunt and strong. Mm -hmm. So is it difficult for you to deal with kind of the reaction that often occurs in America when a woman is blunt and strong? It's kind of like I often teach when I'm talking about eights that we really love male eights in our culture because they're great and strong and they get things done and they're smart and they're fast and quick and we think that's so great. But when you put all of those same qualities in a female, then sometimes in America, sadly, oftentimes, she's not all that great. She's just bitchy. You know, that's yeah. the that's the word that's assigned to that. Yeah, and I, I would say I've had a growing awareness of the problem of being an eight um, <laughs> over the years. I, I, I mean, my biological family were. Um, well, I, I had I grew up with two families. I grew up with in a foster family for the first six years, and um, then with my biological family, and both were surrounded by strong women. So that wasn't problematic. Right. Um, and then in my young adult years, um, when I when I went to college, I realised I had actually been surrounded by strong women that were, were a particular way, and um, I encountered a kind of Christianity where I was meant to be quieter, yeah. <laughs> and where yeah. I, was, I was just a little much. In every situation, I think one of my nicest friends described me as fundamentally heartless. Um, we're still good friends. <laughs> we're still very good friends, very close friends. Oh my God! Did you just say that, that, that your your best friend calls you one fundamentally best, heartless? Yeah. She's one of my ride or dies. She's one of my ride or die friends. She, that is she would, um, And then she said, "You're not that fundamentally heartless." Heartless. <laughs> Whatever that means. Yeah. Which not, I just laughed at. Just a little um, fundamentally yeah. heartless. Yeah. yeah. And. Um, uh, but I think I came into, a, I think England has a similar thing because it's because of the whole stiff upper lip thing where a dynamic woman is sometimes problematic. But it's also had prime ministers like Margaret Thatcher and now Theresa May. Um, it's also had the Queen for the last 60 years. So it's not completely invisible. I think what I wrestled with was um, the intersection of both gender and race on that. I think... Um, it's one thing being a, a woman and a strong woman. I think what I found myself trapped in or coming across was the perception of being an angry black woman mm. um, and that not being cool yeah. <laughs> and that being loaded in ways which caught me off guard, if, if I'm um, to be honest with you, it caught me completely off guard um, because somehow there was a caricature attached to that which didn't just make me bitchy, it made me threatening. 
It made me dangerous. Uh Um, It made me, um, people were wary. And that took a lot to, once I worked out some of the things that were going on and and trying to work out what is just my personality and character and I just need to behave or whatever, um, that that was heartbreaking at times. Mm. That's been heartbreaking. We both have daughters who are eights and it's been heartbreaking for them. You are mightily blessed. We are mightily blessed. Yes, we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it, to steward uh, a, a girl eight, now a young woman eight, um, and yeah. growing up was really an experience. I mean, both both challenging. It had its own challenges, and it, it had its such great, wonderful moments. So I'm a yeah. fan of women eights. Yeah, me too. Yay. Yeah, too. for sure. Thank what you. um, You're familiar with the Enneagram, which is fantastic. And um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering... How that happened? Like, how did you come to know the Enneagram, and what mm-hmm. what impact has it had on your life? You know, it's been over a number of years. I think probably I'll, um, I was a college pastor in England for a few years, and we were doing a lot on personalities stuff. So we looked at Myers Briggs for a while, and throughout that time, I was in complete denial about all things regarding my personality. <laughs> um, in all honesty. Um, and I remember after having my girls, I, I'd lived in the States about 12 years. And um, when I had my girls and it was a kind of moment of reckoning for, for me and trying to ground a sense of who I was in this new country with these new babies, with my own story hitting back at me in some ways um, and, and a toughness, which I'm fine with, but I noticed certain people weren't fine with, <laughs> with from time to time. I seem to leave wreckage around. Um, around the place. And, um, and I, there were a couple of things. I remember I, I looked at the Myers-Briggs stuff first and, um, I knew, um, and I I know it's it's very different from the Enneagram, but it, it, it was a stepping stone for me towards it, I think, because, um, I type as what was described as an ENTJ, which isn't normal. Again, it's the type which was, it's great if you're a guy, if you're a woman, it's kind of awkward. And I remember when I realized it, I, I, I was talking to someone and after I left them, I was driving home and I pulled over and wept. Mm. And I wept and wept because I finally felt like I, it made sense. Mm. It finally made sense. And I think part of me discovering the Enneagram, I remember someone referring to it and I thought, you know, I don't want to hear how heartless I am anymore. I don't want to hear that it's going to be tough for me as a woman. That is my life. <laughs> I don't want to hear that it's tough for me as a black woman. That is my life. I don't need a book to tell me that. But I was drawn by the history of it all. I was drawn by the ancient of it all. Um, essentially, the Desert Fathers were Africans. Um, I'm an African. So no. I'm drawn to the, re- um, the reclaiming of our spiritual history. Um, so I think that was part of it, to be honest with you. And, um, when I first, I read a few books, um, I think I read first the wisdom of the Enneagram, um, and I was very depressed by it. (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I thought, yeah, yeah. And I, and to be honest, I didn't really want to be an eight. I didn't, I thought, can I just avoid the inevitable pain of this? Mm -hmm. And can I avoid, I, I have felt, I have felt contained. I've needed to contain myself for a long time. Um, it's helped people apparently. It's not always helped me. Um, but I think I was drawn to go back to it again. And I think I read Richard, um, Raw's book as well. Um, at some point, um, I read a couple of books and, but I, I it was, it was strangely healing as well, mm-hmm. to be honest, yeah. to see the motivations and to see the journey behind my life and to see what fueled me. And I think at that point I was ready to see some of the underbelly side. 
as well. I was ready to see some of the weaknesses. I think I'd, in my younger years, everything that made me strong in certain contexts, particularly Christian contexts, was seen as a weakness, was seen as being too much and too intense and too heavy. And it was, I think, what the Enneagram has helped me with as a tool has, um, you know, this will sound slightly random, but for me, the Enneagram feels a bit like the kind of tall version of Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is my favorite psalm and I love it because David was a killer. Do you know what I mean? Right. I love it. I love it because it's kind of this flowery psalm often now which has been like has been given watercolor and stringed harps and but the guy who's who's attributed the right the who's the writer of it is this man who's lived a life and got a lot of blood on his hands right and has lived quite the life and he's very complex and so to read oh lord you search me and you know me and i praise you because i'm fearfully and wonderfully made um has always been this breath of fresh air that god you see me in all my complexity in all my brokenness and you still love me and i think the enneagram has helped me unpack some of those pieces yeah and that's what I, that's what I love. About. And that's why I'm, I am committed in many ways to discovering more and more and more. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Have you used it in ministry yet? Um, occasionally, more in, in the back of my mind um, mm. to be aware of. I think because, I'm, because I've been labeled negatively so many times, I'm quite wary of feelings of someone else feeling labeled. But I, I, I think if someone else is self-identified in a particular way, I remember there was um, one of a woman who was my intern a few years back um, and she had self-identified as a two. And so that inspired me to go and read around it and look and explore and what would serve her best, what wouldn't serve her best, where am I really not going to be helpful <laughs> and things like that. So I, I'm wary, I'm, I'm wary of, but probably because I don't feel, I feel I know some, but I want to know more um, until I feel I should be entrusted <laughs> with that level of information. Um, my daughter's an eight, uh, as I said earlier, but my daughter's older than Ian's. My daughter, Joey, is 38. Mm -hmm. She called me one morning and she said, you know, Mom, um, I, I don't think the golden rule applies to eights. And I said, well, because you, you know, that's the kind of thing an eight would call and say. I get that these rules apply to other people, but yeah. they don't apply to me. But they ain't mine. Yeah. yeah. And I said, so what's up with that? And she said, well, I treat people exactly like I want to be treated and it doesn't go well. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. I feel a definite sisterhood with your daughter. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. want to just say that with my daughter, that my daughter's 25 now and mm -hmm. lives in Jordan. It's just, you know, she's fearless. She's absolutely yeah. fearless. I mean, she lives next door to Syria. I, and, you know, and I can't stop her. I mean, if I tried yeah. to stop her, I wouldn't be here. I yeah. would be gone. I would be Not gonna know, work. Yeah. in the wood chipper. And, and you know, um, what I've discovered with Kaylee is her discovering the Enneagram early has been remarkably freeing for her. Like mm -hmm. to have her go out into the world knowing what she knows. Now. And you know what? It softened her. It made her less angry at the world because she hadn't lived long enough to be beaten up by the world for being an eight right. without knowing the dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love for you to respond to this, Joe. Uh, Joey also says that um, betrayal for her is uh, the fact that people judge her before they know her. Yeah. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, I, um, with the betrayal side hugely, I find it incredibly hard to trust people. Um, and I've often felt, I, I'm, 
I, I think even listening to your question, I go back again and again after the different chapters of my life when I walked in as honestly as I possibly could and not realizing that my honestly as I possibly could was not that welcome. Um, and um, that there is a, that I am, I have a loud voice. I am tall, but I think I appear taller than I am. I'm five foot nine, but I think in people's perceptions, I'm six foot four yeah. <laughs> or something. Um, I think there is a, I'm, I'm aware of a vulnerability, a tenderness or whatever, and, a, and an intensity which isn't trying to necessarily force itself on people, but is very passionate. And um, I have sometimes been stunned by the betrayal um, and the, not, not stunned by the invalidation. I kind of culturally, I'm, I'm, I'm used to that. I think I've been stunned by the, I have been stunned by that. It's been breathtaking at times. Um, and I find like when people say, oh, we'd really like to get to know you. I, I nod and smile, but I don't believe it until they say it for the maybe 25th time, yeah. because I'm not sure if I was truly me, how well it'd be handled. And there have been times when I have been as fully myself as possible. And I looked up and thought, yeah, so I left a bit of wreckage there <laughs> or I horrified somebody there or um, I insulted somebody there or I hurt somebody there and I wasn't necessarily trying to. I thought I was just being, I, I thought I was doing what was asked. So how do you, um, how would you counsel someone who asked the question, how do I love an eight toward toward their best selves? Like, how do I, how do I just love an eight? So they, mm -hmm. you know, they, they really get, they get that. I mean, they get the love and they, you know, how do you love an eight toward their best self? Um, I would first ask that person, do you mean that? Do, do you really mean it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and, and that's as, as much a part of the genuine question. I'd say, do you, are you really asking? Um, do you really want to love an eight or do you want to love them into something that is more acceptable? Yeah, that's so good. Uh, um, do you want to love them? Do you want to manage them? Um, because it's like managing a firework right. on one level. I would say one thing I'd encourage them to do, particularly if they were loving an, a, a female eight, I would say observe their world. Observe um, how acceptable women like that are. And I would say um, for a woman of color as well, and, I, and I, I can only speak to my own experience as a black woman, as an African woman at that, but I would say is this kind of, is this type, is this number, whatever label you would use, um, how are they received in, your, in, the, in, in their world? Because I got a shock. I got a shock coming out of a Nigerian world and, and into more white majority spaces. I really did. Um, and it threw me for years, for years. Um, and, and so I would say observe their world because I think you need to know that, you need to know what's acceptable, first of all. Because if you assume, well, everybody loves an eight leader, and you forget that that may apply more to men than women, then um, you, may, you may miss some of their pain. Mm. Um, I would say, observe what that means. And this is before even what to do with them. Observe what that means for their male-female relationships. Right. Because it's, a, it's, on a good day, it's comedy. <laughs> uh, the stories I can tell of my 20s are funny now. <laughs> mm. um, but at the time, they were bewildering and confusing and frustrating, I would say to them, um, be comfortable with debate um, and be comfortable that, be comfortable with passion and intensity, uh, but also be aware that there is a vulnerability and a tenderness that you may not expect to be in this type. If, you, if, if an eight is a caricature in your mind, you may not realize quite how vulnerable they are. 
and you may not realize what breaks their heart and mm. how long it takes them to get over it. Right, 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 right. And I think, oh, sorry. Well, we just have to figure out a way to teach that to young yeah. female aides. We, we got to yeah. figure that out because not too long ago, they um, maybe a year and a half ago, some leading women um, here in the United States did a, who had big jobs and big businesses, yeah. did a campaign about calling little girls bossy. Are you yeah. familiar with when that yeah. kind of mm-hmm. rolled by? And it was so clear to me that little girls who are eights were backing up from who they are yeah. because there was no space for them. Mm-hmm. We got to undo that. I mean, we, yeah. we really have to learn to address that effectively, I think. I agree. I agree. I think it, um, it, we miss out. I think we, I think we miss out. I think our community misses out when people aren't allowed to be their full self. So. Yeah, you know, I think eights and fours, when I first started learning the Enneagram years and years ago, I was surprised that eights and fours get along so well. But I think they Mm. get along so well for two reasons. And one is the authenticity is so important. But the other is I think they've both perceived that they're too much for other people. Yeah. And they have that in common without ever talking about it. It's like it's too much. But on the other hand, when there's a crisis— we want all of you. Yes. It's like, bring it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, I that think must feel people like to go to war. We, yes. actually, yeah. we, we actually had an experience one time with, uh, we had a family crisis and we, with one of the kids, and our daughter Kaylee uh, flew out with us to where the, to our other kid who was struggling. And we were, as parents, kind of a little freaked out. And literally, mm-hmm. she was 19 and everywhere she went, she took yeah. over. And so, yeah. I mean, she knew that we were kind of like just mm-hmm. like, you know, limping along. And everywhere yeah. she went, it was dun, dun, ba, dun, 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 ba, dun, 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 She just walked yeah. right in. And she's, I mean, God bless her. She told us, you know, she'd let us. Yeah. One of the things I feel the worst about for eights is that we use them mm. for those times. Yeah. And then we critique them when they're yeah. that way in other times. That's just not okay. It's not right or just or okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think I often get to a point when I when I know I'm feeling used, because it is useful. It's useful to have a fighter in your corner when when you're up against it, when you need a fight, Um, because um, the eights I know and the eight women I know will fight for you, and they'll fight hard and they'll fight long. We're not afraid of sacrifice. We're not afraid of wounds. We'll just wrap them up and keep on going. Um, But you can almost become a caricature of yourself if you're not careful. Right. And. always brought in for the rough stuff. Right. Um, and then people are surprised. I, I would find myself in situations where I was like, well, am I allowed to be ordinary today? <laughs> am I allowed for this to be part of me too? And, and it, if all, all the, the one I come, up, uh, come across um, the most would be when you're challenging and you're fighting and stuff and, uh, for something, but maybe there's a challenge towards that person as well. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. You can fight for me, but don't don't address me like that. Right. right. You can challenge the status quo, and we think it's passionate and intense and radical. But when you do that in relation to me, you're offensive. You are offensive. Yeah. And who do you think you are? Yeah, yeah. I think eights are the most misunderstood number on the Enneagram, for sure. Not just female eights. I think all eights yeah. are the most misunderstood number. I think, too, that actually, as I was just reflecting, I think we take advantage of every number. I think I think we we take advantage of twos when we need the love in the room, right. mm. and then we we we're like, oh, they're so saccharine when they're not. 
Yeah. You know, when, when yeah. Or, or threes, when we want them to get up front of the church and raise money because they're so good at, you know, wowing yeah. the crowd. And then when we yeah. don't, behind their backs, someone says they're inauthentic and they're, you know, uh, shallow, you know, and yeah. so forth and so on. Yeah. So I think, I think that there's, there's something for us to learn in uh, our being, tr- you know, with other people and really just caring for them for, for yeah. who they are and valuing for them for who they are across the board, you know? Yeah, you know, that that brings up something interesting for me because I, I, I wonder what are transformational times for you, Joe? Like what have been some times or moments where um, you kind of let go of some of who you were to become who to become a better you, not, you know, not a different you, but a, a better version of you. In a positive sense or yes, in a negative yes, sense? Yes, positive sense. Um, I think, to be honest, I think initially the most transformational times were the embracing of being an eight. There you go. I think it was the lack of, it was finally letting go of the conflict. Yes. And and embracing that as fearfully and wonderfully made. I know there was a moment in my teens when um, when because I'm because as you, as you can well imagine I'm very driven. <laughs> um, um, when there was a, a breathing out, a learning to breathe out mm-hmm. and and just be. So I think many of my most transformational moments have been, this is who I am, God, and knowing that I was loved anyway and loved regardless. And not just that I wasn't tolerated, but that I was celebrated by yeah. God. Oh, that's beautiful. I think has been, a, has been a really powerful thing for me. Where, Like for me with God, I feel like he's saying, get on it. This is, I, I'm enjoying this. I want you to enjoy it too. I think those have been transformational things. Um, I think, yeah, love and acceptance, basically. And I wonder if that's true for all of us. But I think when someone sees you, see, really sees you, and um, accepts you, um, those things have been healing because I don't have to explain myself anymore. I think when people listen, I don't have to explain, um, when, I, when I don't have to explain what it means, that the cost it's been to be a leader, even though I love it, the cost it's been to stand alone as a leader as a woman, to stand alone as a leader as a woman of colour. And when people have, have thought my story was worth hearing, and and thought I was worth listening to right. rather than just doing stuff. Well, those things have been transformational because I think they restore a sense of innocence for me and they restore a sense of trust for me. Right, right. And innocence was lost early in your life, I'm sure, because it is for all AIDS. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not sure I knew when it was, actually. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I couldn't tell you a time of innocence. Ever. Yeah. Not at all. I mean, there was happiness, but there wasn't innocence. Innocence, exactly, exactly. Mm. So what does your more innocent side look like? Are you able then to ask for what you need from somebody you trust? Are you um, are you able to kind of say, you know, I, this is what I need and I'm kind of empty and tired and what do you do? Yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm getting there. I think my kids probably bring it out of me best. Um, and you have my husband, two girls, I, right? Two girls, How yeah. How old are and, they? Um, Tia, my eldest is 11 and Zoe is nine. Yeah. And, um, I think they hug me. They just run and hug me. They are all over me and they mock me (laughs) and they laugh at me. (laughs) And, um, I think there's just an ease. There's just an ease, um, that has been particularly powerful. Um, I think there are people who I've gone the distance with, like my closest, closest friend is we've known each other since we were 18. Um, we met in a shoe store. We were selling shoes together, and and um, 
And we, I wasn't, I mean, I had committed my life to Jesus. I just wasn't giving it to him at the time. Oh, that's good language. (laughs) Um, So we had quite a wild summer, but she knows me inside and out. And I feel very safe with her. I, I, so most of the people I trust, there's some kind of longevity. We've all, all of us have had a fallout and have come out on the other side. And those people are able, they can see when I'm, they can see me, they see me. And so they're able to say, hey, um, I know what you're about to say to defend what, how you're fine and everything, but they'll go straight, they'll cut to the quick on it all. Right. Um, I remember there was one time I was going through a really rough time. At, um, we'd just left a church and it had been very painful and I went to stay at a friend's house and they just made me breakfast every morning. Didn't ask me any questions. Just made me, and I think it was just the being taken care of. Right. That was such a healing thing. Because that's innocence, uh, right? Because that's innocence. Yeah, um, exactly. I think those moments of... You know, I, you know, even in my, in my teens, when I, when I had my time out from God, I came back to God when I saw a sunset. And, um, and again, it was just the purity of it all. Um, like last night, I was talking to the Lord because of the supermoon thing, and I stepped outside, and, it was, and you're just showered in this light, in this sheer, pure light. And it's simple, and it's easy, um, and it's innocent. Yeah. So, yeah, those are, those would be some of the things for me, if that yeah. makes sense. It makes perfect sense to me. And I, do you, do you long for innocence or do you just receive it when it comes? Oh, a bit of both. <laughs> ah, um, yeah, a bit of both. I, I, I think there have been times when I've ached for it, to be honest with you. I think there have been times when I've ached for an innocence. I think I was weary very young. Um, and so I didn't recognize it for a while. <laughs> um, but, but I've learned and I'm still learning to receive it yeah. and, and, to, and to risk. I think to risk that um, I, I still have to step out and risk with relationships and vulnerability. I still have to show up and not just show up in the things that are easy for me to do, but to show up in the vulnerability that isn't easy for me to, to be. Is it any easier for, for you to be vulnerable with God? It is now. But oh, I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell me more about that. It is, I think, because for me, my journey of faith was one where I really did feel rescued. Mm. Um, I really did feel helpless and I, and I really did feel saved. So my walk with him as I, I grew up, um, I, I don't want to say poverty because I think UK poverty and, and two-thirds world poverty aren't the same thing. But, um, but it was a vulner- I, I was in a vulnerable state, um, for sure. And so that God always so much bigger than me and so much more amazing and all this stuff and that he knew my name and knew my life was always mind-blowing um but I tell you what though I do the the place where I come undone where I'm realizing it's not hard for me to be vulnerable with my broken pieces as such the broken events of my life I think what I find it hard to be vulnerable with are my broken habits Mm. um so I can talk and wax lyrical about the events that have taken place, but I but there are there are moments where I realise that I'm avoiding God because I still feel I've got to I'm responsible and I've got to make things better. Or um, I think there that you know sometimes it's not when you're recovering from stuff. It's not the event. It's all the self, It's all the habits you formed to cope with that event. <laughs> that are the things that are just that much more pervasive. You know, and that much more, those things, I find myself coming, I feel like they're the layers of an onion in my faith with God. And it's like, oh, we're at another layer, aren't we? Oh, I, I thought I was past this by, by now. And I felt strong and, and all that. And uh, no, oh, still weak. And yeah. um, once I, once I, it doesn't take me too long when I'm feeling weak to be able to reconnect. But I think that moment of admission is 
it can be a costly one for me. Mm. You know, one of the questions, Joe, that I like to ask everybody is, what are you passionate about? But I'm mm. not going to ask you that. Right, because it's everything. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's the question yeah. I am going to ask you. What do you have peace about? Oh, that's a, oh, I love that one. I have peace that God is good, that he is kind, um, that he is ultimately kind. Um, I have peace that innocence is worth pursuing. Yeah. Um, I have I have peace in, in the people I, in the relationships with people I love mm-hmm. and that I am loved by them and that I have, and I do have peace. This is an odd, I have a peace that even in the times of war, that peace will come. Mm. I'm not afraid of fighting. I'm not afraid of hardship. I'm not afraid of war. Um, I realize I use war as a military image probably more often than others are comfortable with, but I'm not afraid of those things. I'm not afraid of bleeding yeah. because, because he will come. He will come. So um, at a time in our culture when we're lacking a little bit of peace. Here, oh, my gosh. Um, at a time when people are trying to find a place to stand that yeah. will offer them some peace. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find any peace in all of that? Is there a place? Ooh, I'm telling you, the, it's hard right now. It is hard right now. I think it's hard. Um, the hard point for me was on Friday. On Friday, we got an email from the principal of my daughter's school and the level of racist abuse that is happening. And um, it's not a shock to me. <laughs> um, I knew this was coming. I knew, I knew as I know anything that this was coming. I knew the email would come. Um, it's not my chart. My, like I said, my children are 9 and 11. Of course, they've experienced racism by now. They experienced it later than me. Um, I, I think my first racist experience, I was three. Um, wow. And it was brutal and it was verbal and it was aggressive by people older than I was. Um, but I, I remember thinking, Lord, how do I stand in this moment? And how do I help my babies to stand? And in, when, in many ways, not just my babies, um, but the Latino kids in our community and the Muslim kids in our community and... Um, it's huge. <laughs> it's it's huge, and it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable because I know those things can shape your self esteem so much, and um, can shape your worth and how you how lovable you feel and how the contribution you make and how worthy you feel. And um, I think when I saw the the email from the principal, I I took a long deep breath, <laughs> um, a long deep breath because I naturally as a mum and as a parent, you know, you are, you will fight for your kids, whatever type you are, you find your way to fight. And, um, but equally I've got to raise them in a world which isn't always going to appreciate their diversity, the richness of who they are. I can't pretend it's never going to happen. And I know, and I know the reality that I can't protect them from it all. I, I can't, I'd love to. And here I am, the one who loves to fight, the one who loves justice and all these things, the one who is unapologetic about being a leader. And I know I, I mean, you know, I hate powerlessness. Right. <laughs> and um, I think I had to mourn that reality again. Mm-hmm. I have a lot. I, I have a lot going on in my work for the last year about our inability to grieve. Mm-hmm. And I think it's costing us a great deal. The fact yeah. that we don't know how to grieve. Mm-hmm. And right now, I, I wish we knew how to grieve. I, I think if we could 
all grieve. I'm, I'm not yeah. speaking from one side or the other. Yeah, I think totally. we could just all grieve where we find ourselves so yeah. that we could grieve what we've lost. Yeah. I think it might be easier for us to to rebuild. Does that make any sense to you? Do you have a response to that? I mean, I, I, I've learned the, that grief is important. <laughs> and um, and I, I think I know in times for me, unprocessed grief has never done me any good. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? The unprocessed grief of, of bereavement, of losing my father, of losing my foster mother, though it wasn't good to not process. The, the, but the grief, understanding grief is not just being the death of people, but the losses. And I think it is important to grieve the losses. Um, and I think maybe we'd hear people differently. I think so too. I think if we heard their pain, and I think that's been the challenge for me as a, as a leader in this moment of not wanting to be, this is a moment where I don't want to be vulnerable. This moment we're in is one where I don't want because I because if there's anything I hate, it's people misunderstanding this moment. Right, right. <laughs> Do you know right. what I mean? Um, I, 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 this is a moment where I'd much rather put the facade up and because I and bleed in private. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really is, but I know that. Um, but there's a piece also in in saying, but this is the story, and this is I'm not making a comment on your choices, but this is the story. Yeah. And it's and it is real, and it's not going to go anywhere. And so I, I think hearing people's grief would be is again, regardless of anybody's choices, is a huge thing right now. And I'm not saying it's a fix all; it's not a cure. There was never a silver bullet, but I think it's an important step for sure. Yeah, if we pretend it's something other than it is, we just miss this opportunity, and we'll be here again. Yeah, we yeah. will be here again. Absolutely, absolutely. We can't get over it. Well, you we know, have to go through the grief. Uh, we we have to close soon, but I just want to tell you that one of my dreams for our show is I want to just play clips, you know, mm-hmm. just want to play some different clips from different interviews, and then I want people to guess what number those people are. <laughs> <laughs> and unless I'm feeling particularly generous, I don't, I don't think we'll use yours because they would know right away. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want you to know that I um, am so grateful in this moment for my daughter. Because she has taught me to receive um, mm. all that is female eights. Yeah. And I I need I need space for that. I need space yeah. for people who are different than me. But the way yeah. I want to say it right now is I need space for people whose innocence doesn't look like mine. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful way to put it. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, you know, in closing, for me, I'd say what I've loved it, that, unfortunately, people haven't been able to see you uh, as I have, which is that you've not stopped smiling the whole time that we've been together. And I, I don't, I suspect that that's not just, that. that's just you. And, and so that intensity and, and that, that passion along with it is twinned at least in this very short time that I've, that I've been with you, mm-hmm. with, a, with a, a, a hopefulness, a joy, a, a gurgling internal fount <laughs> of laughter. And, you know, I think that's something, you know, if, if we, we were to default to stereotyping, people think of eights as angry, you know, this sort of mm-hmm. radiating rage thing. And mm-hmm. you just radiate a real vibrancy and joy. And I, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. In one of our interviews earlier uh, in this process, Ian asked me to run through the gifts of each number, what they might have to offer us right now. And I, I think maybe I over-talked about the fact that I think nines who have the ability to see 
two sides to everything have so much to offer us right now. But it occurred to me while I was listening to you talk about your children and the note from school that I, I, I really believe what is required right now from all of us is passion. Mm. And I think yes. there's going to be such a tendency to give up mm. instead, to, yeah. to turn what could be helpful into cynicism or sarcasm. Yeah. So I'm so grateful to have sat in the presence of your passion for this time that we've been together because I'm kind of I'm whipped up and kind of <laughs> ready to go. And so it's <laughs> infectious. You. So don't hold back. Don't hold Thank back. Thank you. Gosh, it's good to meet you. Yes, it is. You too. Peace and grace to you. Peace and good, friend. Take care. Lovely to meet you. Uh Uh-huh. You You too. too. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, produced by Jim Chapey, and our engineer is Brad Bass. Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Lori Chaffer. Please visit our website, www.theroadbacktoyou.com, for news, more podcasts, and a list of our public appearances around the country. And you can order our book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Please join us next week. You don't want to miss it.